What a wonderful day this is, thought Volusionists. The sun is shining, birds are chirping as new life awakens, and my hammock is screaming for me. <laughs> But I have decided to instead bring you another amazing story. So let that hammock scream just a little longer. The name it is shouting is Stefan Dubier. That's me, and I am your host. Thank you for being here. With this being such a delightful day, I'm quite humbled. Do you ever wake up and ask yourself how you got so lucky to just live another day, to take another breath, to just be allowed to be a little longer? I'm actually taking a virtual trip to the beautiful country of Canada today to talk to my guest, Aaron. Like many, many others, Aaron was impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. Let's face it. COVID touched every single one of us in one way or another and left our lives altered, forever changed. It robbed us of the lightness of life that we used to take for granted. And while many of us, greatly because of availability of life-saving vaccines, have been able to sort of move on and kind of return to life without any major impairments, Others were affected in ways that still remind them of the severity of COVID every single day. Sadly, Aaron is one of the people who are still suffering from the COVID aftermath, known as long COVID, with a rare lung disease, making the once very healthy version of herself seem like a faded, distant memory. As heartbreaking as that is, in a weird way, Her health issues also managed to make Erin acutely aware of how precious life is and how insignificant we all are in the vastness of the world and the universe. An invaluable life lesson, Erin also tries to transport to other people in her work as a mentor. Just think about it. All it took was a tiny little virus for us to be forced to, at least temporarily, relearn to appreciate the important things in life. Human connections, certain freedoms, health itself. Many of us lost loved ones or know somebody who did. I know that for some, COVID itself or the COVID vaccines have become a topic of friction, arguing, discussion. I'm asking you to set whatever it is you believe aside for an hour and to just listen to Aaron's story. One that is not meant to change anything, but one that is very real, very consequential, and in my opinion, very impactful. I'm grateful that Erin is here, that she is very much alive, and that we get to hear her story, unfiltered, without agenda, just because this is Erin's journey. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about disease, chronic illness, COVID-19, long COVID, and associated trauma. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. One of my all-time favorite movies is Aaron Brockovich. So I already know that I'm going to like you, Aaron, and with a name like that, you can only be a real-life hero, just like the real Aaron Brockovich and the amazing Julia Roberts, of course, By the way, in your intake form, you mentioned that you are not a fan of the sweet tea people drink here in the US, especially in the South. I know some people will be really mad at me about this, but I find sweet tea absolutely disgusting. 
My son loves it, of course, but I cannot stomach drinking sweet tea. Ugh. <laughs> but it made me chuckle reading that. Now, one thing I found super fascinating when reading through your form is that you are an urban farmer and an unschooling mom. You are going to have to tell us a bit more about that. All right. Well, I think I'm going to start with the unschooling part. I've always been interested in learning in the broader sense. And I have, you know, a collection of degrees sort of lining up with different styles of learning. And when I'm, I'm a teacher, actually, by trade, and when I was going to teacher's college, they were throwing out the whole section that they had on self-directed education. So all of the textbooks and magazines that they had that were related to that topic, they were tossing them and I saw them in the trash. And I was looking through them and thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know why we have not been exposed to this particular style of learning. You know, that, that was just sort of my first taste. And it really resonated with me because I have an undergrad in kinesiology. And so, you know, I, I dabbled in coaching and understanding, you know, intrinsic motivation. And I have a master's of business. And so same sort of thing, you know, what motivates people to do the things that they do. So I was curious about adult learning and how, I guess, how we approach learning with children. And it just seemed like there was such a big disconnect between how we approach adult learning and then child learning. We're so much more like imposing. And, you know, we have these ideas of how learning should look or how it should be expressed. So self-directed education really sort of has been woven throughout my different experiences with work and learning. And I was working as a teacher when I was pregnant with my firstborn. And when I was on maternity leave and here in Canada, we have a really great maternity leave. So I was off for a year. I was spending a lot of time reading about you know, reading about parenting and thinking about what kind of parent I wanted to be. And I was reading a lot of attachment theory books. And I was also thinking about the kids in my classes who I guess they weren't, you know, they just weren't flourishing. And I was trying to figure out what could I be doing differently so that they could have a chance to really blossom. And I, I came back to finding self-directed education and how it works so well, especially for kids who are neurodivergent and kids who've gone through trauma. You know, it, it seems to work well for everybody, but it works especially well for them. So I had been learning about those things. I returned to work after my maternity leave. I was applying a lot of those concepts in my classroom and just really floored by what I was seeing, but I also recognized within our public education system in my province, there's only so far that I can take this. So if I want to apply more of these principles, I'll probably have to do that outside of the public education system. And as my son was reaching the age where he was going to be entering public school, and in my province, it's definitely the norm for everybody to be entering public school. 
there are private schools here. Um, there, there have always been homeschoolers here also, but I was pretty judgmental about homeschoolers <laughs> and, uh, and private school isn't as popular here in Ontario as it is in the U.S. states. So my son, I, I just recognized, you know, I don't think he's ready. I don't think school would be a really good fit for him right now. I don't think that that would be a positive experience for him. And so I thought maybe, you know, if my partner, if my husband is on board, maybe this would be a good time to try something different. So I actually started a forest school and it was perfect timing because forest schools were just, you know, gaining popularity and there was a lot of interest. So, you know, I found some really interesting, bright people in my community who were interested in starting it with me. Um, we ran that forest school for a few years. And in Ontario, you don't have to commit to being in school until the age of six. So there's a lot of flexibility for four-year-olds and five-year-olds. But by the time my son was six, you know, I had already been doing this consent-based learning with him, this unschooling style of learning, this self-directed education. And I also had the sense that he probably ticked a couple boxes for being neurodivergent. And I just thought, I really think this is probably the best option for him. If we can find a way to make this work in our family financially, I think I, I would like to keep trying it. I think it's a good fit for our kids. My partner was skeptical and still has moments of, of wondering, is this the right thing to do? And to be honest, sometimes I do too. It does feel like a big experiment sometimes, and we're hoping that we're getting it right. But in creating a forest school, we went on to create a city school. And so that was having a home base within our local city. But then a lot of the learning happened outside of our home base. So like exploring the city and learning as we go, according to what activities or things the kids were interested in or what they wanted to do. And then from that city school, um, we also decided that we were going to try a farm location and we bought a piece of property that was a farm and we built a house on it. And yeah, so that's how the ur urban farming thing started happening. I've always been a gardener, like I've always enjoyed having a garden and puttering around in the garden. But this urban farming thing is a trip. There's a, there's, it's totally different trying to you know, grow produce to sell to other people on a more mass scale than, you know, what I might feed my family. So it's been a lot of learning, but we also feel really grateful for the learning that we've been able to do, especially as a family and extending it to other people in our community. So yeah, I, I hope that sort of gives an overview about how our family navigates education. And, you know, it's not just education, it's also a lifestyle. It's very much consent-based, not so hierarchical interactions between parent and child. So yeah, that's, that's my overview of urban farming and unschooling. That is very, very interesting and fascinating. Now, can you tell me a little bit about your life prior to the first uttering or mentioning of the term COVID-19. I know it seems, I think to all of us, like that was ages ago, but what was life like for you? You know, when I think about my before, 
you know, I really remember the the before where I was aware of COVID and yet it still felt really far away. If, you know, I remember it being in Italy. I remember reading about it. I remember watching videos about it. But in my little world, you know, we were still living normally and we didn't have enough exposure to, you know, we had some exposure with other diseases in Toronto, but they had been contained. And so it wasn't part of our daily life to think about it. And my kids had been, we had been studying fairy tales and like different versions of fairy tales. And like, I remember right before everything happened, you know, everything started to shut down and suddenly it was here and prevalent. Um, I remember taking them out to an opening performance of Beauty and the Beast in Toronto. And we did like every super spreader. <laughs> now we, now I would think of it as being a super spreader event. We, we did so many things that I didn't think twice about. We, uh, we rode the subway and we happened to get caught on the subway for 45 minutes without any air circulation and, you know, people coughing and, you know, you could feel the grime <laughs> in the air on that subway. We went to the busiest mall in Toronto at the busiest time of the day and, you know, touching all of the the railings and doors and not even aware of, you know, well, not thinking twice about how much we're touching and then perhaps how much we're touching our faces. But yeah, it was just, it was, it was, it felt so easy and free, you know, especially as an unschooling family, when the kids are interested in something, you know, you just find a way to move into that direction even more. So when they were really into the fairy tales, you know, finding that performance and sitting in a crowded theater, I didn't think twice about it. This was this was a really awesome experience to be able to take my kids to an opening night performance of Beauty and the Beast and uh, and just watch their excitement, you know, seeing this live performance and and experiencing it with everyone else around us. You know, a lot of families were in the theater that night for their opening night celebrating the actors who are on the stage. So, you know, it felt so joyous and we, we weren't, you know, you didn't think twice about what you were doing um, or the choices you were making. It was, it, it just wasn't on my radar yet. What are some things from the before times that now still strike you as surreal looking back? I think like having lived what I've now lived. I just, I never, I never dreamed that, you know, at the age of 44, I would be having to think so clearly about where I'm going and where, who I'm interacting with and whether or not other fellow human beings are safe for me to be around. You know, I, I didn't realize the experiences of other people who were dealing with chronic illness and uh, and how lonely that can be. <laughs> you know, I never, I, we did hand washing, but it was never like in a panic. It was never with this deep sense of fear. And I never masked before this. That never would have crossed my mind. And like, even in my teaching days, I taught kindergarten for a while and those kids like cough directly into your mouth <laughs> and I would get sick. And I, I never worried about getting sick. I never like getting sick was just, you know, a thing that happened and I would be okay. And I would recover. There just, there wasn't the worry. 
And now I live with that worry and it's heavy. What about your health before COVID? Did you ever have any major issues or anything? I would say no. I I have been so lucky to be healthy. As a teacher, I I was certainly exposed to a lot of viruses and everything that, you know, a classroom full of young children would bring to school. And, uh, you know, I got sick, but I always got better. I haven't had any major surgeries. I haven't, I haven't even had broken bones. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm trying to think I've, I've always enjoyed, you know, healthy lifestyle and active lifestyle. And, you know, now I see what a privilege that is also, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm even like struggling to think, you know, what kind of medications did I take? And I know that when I was running a lot in university, you know, sometimes I would need to take an asthma puffer, but it was not even all the time. Like it was sort of when I got sick and I was still trying to run. <laughs> so yeah, like I, I feel like I am, I'm a great case study because I really didn't walk into this with any major health issues. To me, it's still heartbreaking to see those numbers, but according to the World Health Organization, at the time of us recording this, 6.85 million people have died from COVID. Do you remember when and how you started understanding that COVID was, in fact, a real threat? Well, you know how I, I shared in, you know, what did life look like before COVID and, you know, taking my kids to that theater performance and a day in Toronto, uh, riding the subway a few days after having that experience with them, I started to feel really cold and my body was aching in, in a way that was unusual. And then I got a sore throat. And then very quickly, I noticed that my breathing was really rough. And there were, you know, there were rumblings by that point in time that, you know, COVID's going to be a thing. There were people who were saying, you know, stock up on medications, stock up on um, grocery items. And there were a whole lot of people who were saying, you know, they're overblowing this whole situation. But I was feeling unwell and I could tell it was immediately, well, maybe not immediately, but very quickly it had moved to my chest. And I thought, what if I need a puffer? You know, I haven't needed a puffer in 10 years but what if this time I need a puffer and then COVID becomes a thing and I can't get it? And I went, I, I booked an appointment with my doctor and I went to that appointment and it was in person. And as soon as she saw me and asked what my symptoms were, she looked at me and she said, do you have COVID? And she looked terrified. And I said, I don't know. Like, can't you tell me that? <laughs> and uh, she she panicked and she said, you have to leave right now, call public health. And she made me go out the back door of the medical building. And I'm like shaking, like what is happening? And that day, our provincial government made an announcement that they were going to shut down public schools and basically shut down the province for an extra two weeks after the spring break because of COVID. And that night, you know, I asked my partner to go and get my puffer medication and to go to the store and pick up a few things just in case I had something. 
And uh, I remember he came home with a loaf of bread and he said, I didn't want to get your puffer medication. You know, it was really expensive. Are you sure you need it? (laughs) Really kind of dismissive. And so I went out myself and got the puffer and went to the grocery store and I just saw mass panic, like grocery store shelves were bare and like living in North America, I had never experienced that before. It was shocking. And meanwhile, I'm walking around with a sore throat and wheezing and no mask. Like I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> like I, I, I wish I knew so that I, I wasn't out breathing on people at that point in time. But at the same time, um, I think everyone was reacting. How do you think the Canadian government handled the pandemic? What measures did they take and how did people respond to those measures? I think the Canadian government, you know, everyone was uncertain. (laughs) And I think the Canadian government was trying to be cautious in terms of restricting travel. Try, you know, we have public health care here. And so that part is also important to protect. We couldn't have, you know, a lot of movement within our country and between countries and potentially overwhelm our hospitals to the point where they couldn't care for people. A lot of what I think our government was trying to do probably went unnoticed. You know, it was probably happening behind closed doors. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of respect and adherence to public health recommendations. I think people were scared and wanted to listen to, you know, a voice who had some expertise in the area. Provincially, you know, I I didn't vote for for the person who was running our province. However, I, I felt supportive of the way he was handling things also. I thought that he was trying to protect people who were vulnerable, protect our hospitals. I think, you know, it it was a time, I think, when a lot of Canadians and a lot of people in my province, like provincially, I think a lot of us were feeling uh, united. And at that beginning point, you know, nobody knew what was going on. And we were just, you know, there was a lot of trust, you know, looking to people in authority to guide us so that we could, you know, make it through this thing. (laughs) We just didn't realize this thing wasn't going to be a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. But I think initially there was a lot of support for, you know, the politicians who were making decisions. And uh, I think I think people felt, you know, we were, I think people were afraid, but we also felt safe. You know, that trust was intact. You said that this is how the people originally reacted. Did that behavior or that level of acceptance change at some point? Well, I mean, I was speaking broadly, saying that for the most part, I think a lot of people were trusting, you know, our provincial and federal government and the advice that we were being given. But I mean, there was certainly a portion of the population who, you know, was already feeling really uh, distanced from Western medicine, or maybe they had traumatic experiences with Western medicine you know, they were anti-vax already and passionate about that. So there was always that population of people, and I'm I'm friends with some of them <laughs> who are still that way, still believe that. So I think that there was always that 
population. And we had a lot of shutdowns in our province and in our country. And I think when those shutdowns happened and people were not able to as easily have those in-person conversations where you're talking to someone who has a different opinion than you. And I think they were turning to social media. They were turning to Facebook for information, Instagram, you know, wherever people were using social media, Twitter, TikTok, they were, they were turning to not the people in their lives who might be grounding them through their own personal experiences. They were turning to something that was giving them an algorithm that, you know, wasn't necessarily feeding them information that, that might show a different perspective. And so I think those long stretches of being isolated and not having those interpersonal face-to-face connections of talking with people who are different, I think that had real impact. And, you know, as things dragged on, as it took a long time for, you know, hopeful, (laughs) hopeful events to, to come about, you know, everything felt like drudgery. You know, when is this going to be over? People thought it was going to be over quickly and then it wasn't. And so, you know, these little seeds of mistrust started to bloom for some people and people started to question, you know, is it really, is COVID really that bad? I think by the time there was vaccinations that were publicly available to all of us, so in Ontario, um, they rolled them out in a very systematic way. Healthcare people got them first, and then it went to people who were in long-term health uh, institutions, um, people who were medically vulnerable, uh, the elderly. So by the time it got to the general population, it had been over a year of a lot of shutdowns, uh, economic hardship. And again, I keep going back to like social media algorithms that were feeding people, you know, the things that would make them angry, the things that seemed, you know, oh, you know, this seems like critical thinking. It seems like something different, but you weren't having those in-person conversations of someone who maybe had truly experienced COVID. You had, you know, people were at home and it just seemed like, you know, this this was a mirage. This this couldn't be real. It was hard for people to grasp. And at first in Ontario, vaccinations were totally a choice. So people could decide whether or not they got vaccinated. And a lot of people were so eager to get vaccinated. <laughs> um, it was it was a scramble. Like as soon as you knew your age group. Um, was going to have the vaccine available. Like people were waking up early to get their vaccinations. A lot of people were excited to either move on with life, like this would bring them a little bit of peace of mind, or maybe you knew someone who was medically vulnerable and, and you know, you were going to work and exposing someone that you care about to, you know, this this virus that could be so scary for them. So anyway, people, some people were really excited and other people were hesitant. And I get the hesitancy. You know, it was a vaccine, like I say, a vaccine. There were several vaccines um, that were rolled out. And normally, a lot of vaccines go through several trial periods, and these were pushed along faster. So I understand the hesitancy uh, among a lot of people whether it was just related to this particular vaccine or if it was related to, you know, like I was saying earlier, like trauma or bad experiences that they might have had. As as the summer progressed in Ontario, rumblings started to happen 
you know, our provincial government started to make it clear that, you know, everyone's going to need to get vaccinated because uh, those who are vaccinated are going to have access to more social type experiences and people who aren't vaccinated, you know, you can still go to the grocery store, you can still get all of the things that you need to function in life, but you won't be able to go to restaurants and eat. And as those realities started to sink in for people, some people were really angry about that. Some people were angry about that because of that feeling of their rights. Some people were upset about, you know, they just, they weren't feeling ready and they were feeling pressured and it felt really uncomfortable and scary to be pressured. If you had a government job in Ontario or even federally, like you were Canadian government employee, your workplace was mandating that you get a vaccination or you take a, you know, if there was an alternative so that you could work at home, you could do that. But a lot of them were were being pressured vaccine or you take a leave of absence. And a lot of people felt so uncomfortable about that. And I remember, I remember that shift. I remember, <laughs> I remember it so clearly. People really starting to have a divide about where they stood and why. And I think the more people felt divided, the harder it became to have conversations and to think about other people in our community. It's very interesting to see this, this shift that I think happened in a lot of countries from the virus actually uniting us at something that we can all fight against and as something that we as people can come together and stand up against to people's minds shifting and people becoming impatient and people becoming frustrated. And for some, I guess, the exhaustion of COVID getting the best of them and sadly, a lot of those people dying. Now, you were in the midst of all of this. Uh, as you said, early on, you felt sick. You tried going to the doctor. Did you ever get an official COVID diagnosis? And... You described to me that it was very difficult finding answers in general and getting the care you needed. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Did I ever get an official diagnosis? Heartbreakingly, no. I have to take a minute for, for my heart to break a little bit, even just thinking about that again. So I went to my doctor, visited my doctor, and she felt terrified that I had it. She didn't, she didn't say you have it because she didn't know, but I had enough symptoms to make her worried. Um, at that point in time, public health in my province was saying that fever was a symptom. And if you didn't have fever, you didn't have COVID. And, you know, at first, the first time I called public health and shared my symptoms and, you know, what do you want me to do? I didn't have a fever and they said, don't worry, you're fine. And within 24 hours, I had lost my sense of smell, my sense of taste. I was nauseous, diarrhea, like I had everything but a fever. And I called them back <laughs> and said, you know, I, I have new symptoms. And at the time, I think everybody in my province was terrified that they had COVID. They, you know, probably public health was overrun with people calling scared that they had it and there were no tests anyway available for the public you know the only tests available the only covid tests available were for people who were 
not only being hospitalized, but like urgent care hospitalization. Like we need to know if they have COVID because do we need to isolate them? But even within hospitals, like even within ER departments, they didn't have enough COVID tests to test everyone. You know, if you were okay, they were going to send you home and hope that you were going to be okay. There was a lot of paperwork for them to go through. So I, I know I felt it was such an odd collection of symptoms for me that I didn't quite feel satisfied with that answer that, you know, without a fever, it wasn't COVID. And so I started to research online and see like Italy was already so far ahead of where we were in Canada in terms of their experiences with COVID. Um, and even New York, like I, I remember, you know, looking through Uh, different articles that were coming out of New York and, you know, what were their experiences with COVID. And I started to realize, you know, there are people who, you know, it's not a set group of symptoms for each person. Like each individual has a certain number of symptoms that might be uh, shared, but there's also some variants. And so just because I don't have a fever actually doesn't mean that I don't have COVID. And and I was also sort of paying attention to my kids. I had my husband sleep in the other room. Um, and my youngest, who at the time was three, she was like my little shadow. And if anyone else was going to get sick, it was be, it was going to be her because like she just wouldn't let me isolate. That was not something that we had ever had to think about doing before. It felt weird. And uh Like, I remember when I was sick, she still wanted to like snuggle into my arms. And, you know, I remember her napping and me feeling like, how am I supposed to breathe away from her when she's fallen asleep in my arms? Like, how seriously do I have to take this? You know, just feeling confused, but also thinking, I think I have it. And it wasn't the worst illness I've ever had in my life. I've had, I had the flu once in my twenties and that was brutal. This was like bad, but it wasn't. It wasn't the worst ever. And I think I think things started to shift for me when I it had been two weeks and a lot of the symptoms had gone away. And I was, it was, you know, in Ontario, winter seems to last forever. <laughs> and it was the first Sunday. And I thought I'm going to go and take a look around the farm and see what needs to be done for the growing season. And just walking around, I couldn't breathe. Like I was struggling to breathe and I thought this isn't right. So I started to call my doctor repeatedly. And at that point in time, they were not doing in-person visits. They were only doing phone consultations. So after asking her, you know, what should I do? I had this puffer (laughs) that wasn't working. It wasn't helping any of my symptoms And, you know, she just kept saying, you know, maybe you could up the dosage of the puffer. And I would. And, you know, there was still no relief. And I was getting worse. My breathing was getting worse. You know, things like climbing the stairs. And then I would like collapse at the top of the stairs and just like trying to get enough air in. And I just couldn't, you know, unable to read a story aloud to my kids. At that point in time, you know, Zoom was new for everybody. (laughs) Everyone was doing their work calls over Zoom. And I remember trying to speak in a Zoom meeting and having to like, (laughs) I was leading a Zoom meeting once and um, and telling everyone we were going to meditate (laughs) for a minute because I, I couldn't catch my breath. I couldn't talk. So I, it was definitely abnormal for me to be 
struggling as much as I was. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to a walk-in clinic and to get an in-person walk-in clinic visit, I needed to not have a fever, <laughs> which I didn't have. So they let me in uh, and he listened to my chest and you know, I said, I, I suspect that I had COVID and he asked, did you have, did you have a fever? And I said, no. And he said, no fever, no COVID. And, uh, part of me felt relieved by that. You know, I still wanted to believe I was okay. And then the other part of me was like, "Ah, it just seems really dismissive. And he, you know, he listened to my chest. He said, I can't hear anything up your puffer dosage. And so that's what I did. And for the next two months, I continued to struggle to breathe. There were no additional in-person appointments. So I, it was just phone call appointments. And then my body started to get over it. And I remember having a phone call with my doctor following up. And she said, oh, you finally sound better. I can hear it in your voice. And I said, I am feeling better, but my breathing's still not right. This doesn't quite feel normal. And she gave me um, an appointment. Like she she sent me uh, an appointment slip uh, so that I could book my own appointment with a respirologist. And I I called the respirologist and they weren't taking new patients because of COVID. <laughs> so, you know, my body continued to do some really weird stuff. I started to lose hair, like clumps of hair. My my period went really wonky. Usually in the summer, I like I'm pretty active and I eat pretty healthy. And it's so easy to eat healthy in the summer with like farmers markets and you know what we're growing here. But I put on 20 pounds, eating the same, exercising the same, and I put on 20 pounds. My face got really swollen, my neck got swollen, and I started to feel depressed. And I had, I started to have memory issues and it's not small things. Like I couldn't remember my niece and nephew's name. Like I I would be trying to communicate and it was like the word was there and I couldn't access it. And I'm like, this isn't right. (laughs) And at that point in time, no one was talking about long COVID, but I, you know, without having the answers and knowing that this isn't right. And, you know, I can't get in to see a respirologist and my doctor's still saying, oh, it's, it's probably just stress. We've all been so stressed out with COVID, but I, I don't know. It just wasn't sitting right with me. I still wasn't breathing well. Anyway, I started to find out, is there anyone who has had something happening beyond their COVID infection? And that's when I started to come across the term long COVID. And in the beginning, there wasn't a whole lot of information out there on it. But on Facebook, I found a group of people who believed that they had COVID. Similar to me, like it was a Canadian group, they they didn't necessarily have a positive COVID test to go along with it because there was a you know a large chunk of people who who didn't have access to tests at the beginning. And so that just started as a support group. Like, what have you been asking your doctor for? What has been working for you? What hasn't? And so I asked for, you know, some blood tests. I asked for, you know, different things. And like a lot of long COVID patients, there wasn't any serious red flags that were coming back in the testing that was done. So, you know, within that long COVID support group, some people were talking about, you know, switching your diet as though you had an autoimmune disease. 
So I did that and I made big changes to my diet as though I had an autoimmune disease. And with that, I was able to stabilize my period. I, my hair loss, <laughs> thankfully, I stopped having that hair loss. And, and, so, and I wouldn't say the brain fog went away right away, but it stopped worsening. And I would say that by, what year would that have been? January, 2021, a lot of things had stabled to the, like stabilized to the point where it wasn't a front priority for me anymore to get help. Um, I had found ways to manage life with this weird breathing and uh, a lot of the other symptoms you know, they were, they were manageable. And so I went about daily life. Like it wasn't a big deal. I, my family started to notice when my breathing was deteriorating and by, let's see, by the time I could get vaccinated, it was at my first vaccination was actually on my birthday in June. And I, I told them, you know, I was just very flippant about it. I think I just, you know, they asked, do you have any of these symptoms? Because as much as people didn't want to get the vaccination, if you had a certain number of symptoms, they weren't going to give you the vaccination, even if you wanted it in my problem. So I remember, you know, going through that list and saying, yeah, I have all these things, but it's long COVID. And at that time, you know, medical people had had a little inkling of long COVID. And so they let me get my first vaccination. And then a month a month and a half later, after getting that vaccination, I had a really scary episode of not being able to breathe through the night. And it was so scary that I, I just thought, like, I, <laughs> this is not normal. Um, I can't pretend like I can go on like this. I called my doctor and she said, you know, I can, I can give you some different puffers or you can go to emergency and, you know, see if they can get an x-ray and give you some different answers. Cause that was the one thing that I hadn't done yet was get an x-ray. And I went to um, our emergency department in my city. And, uh, you know, even as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about all of the doctor's appointments that I've had where they're like, no, you're normal. Everything's normal. It's all fine. It's just stress. And, you know, I was texting my husband and I was saying like, what do I do if they come back this time? And they say, this is normal because this is not normal. And he, I didn't realize he had done that, but he had recorded my breathing the night before because he was really scared that something was going to happen to me. And he was also worried that I wasn't going to be believed. And I'm this quiet little room by myself listening to my breathing. And I'm like, oh my God, like I, I sound like I'm dying. <laughs> and, uh, and then the doctor came in and she started asking me COVID questions. And I was like, huh. Um, and I'm answering no, like I, and, and I had done a COVID test and the answer was no, I don't have COVID. But my x-ray had come back with, what is it called? Crazy paving. And that is a, a common feature for people who've had COVID is that they have that kind of crazy paving in their lungs. And she said, so it's either COVID or it's a very rare disease. I'm going to give you some antibiotics and, you know, take the antibiotics. And she gave me two different kinds in case it was COVID or in case it was some other illness. I initially, I took the medications and I don't like antibiotics. You know, I, I try not to take them. 
Um, but my body at first I was like, Oh, I, and I was relieved. I was so relieved to like finally have an answer. And in my head, I thought, you know, I'm going to take this medication and within two weeks, I'm going to be back to my regular self. And at first, initially, I think I did feel a little bit better. And then I felt so much worse. And the deterioration of my health was rapid. I, I went, I continued to go back to ER because that seemed to be the fastest route to getting help. My doctor had also sort of upped my urgency in terms of getting in with a respirologist, but even still I was going to like, I think she made the call in August and my appointment was the beginning of November. So it was going to still be months. And so I just kept going back to ER because I knew I was getting worse. I knew that I was deteriorating rapidly and I, I also remember <laughs> the ER appointment where the doctor brought me in and showed me x-rays of my lungs because each time I would go in, they would do a new x-ray. And he showed me and he said, you are getting worse. And I feel really scared about admitting you to the hospital and you getting something else. I need you to go home. I'm going to make you an urgent patient to get into a respirologist. I need you to go home. And you need to protect yourself in every way you can. And like that scared me, but it was also validated because I was feeling so sick. Before I kind of jump in here and ask my little follow-up question, I want to say that I feel your pain and that I am so sorry that you had to go through that. I can only imagine how isolating and alienating it must feel to not feel at home in your body anymore because, you know, you're going through all of these health issues that seem to be completely out of control and there seems to be nothing that you can do. To then go to the specialists, to the doctors, to the people who are there to give you an answer just to still not have an answer. So from the bottom of my heart, I I feel your pain and I... I can only imagine the ordeal that you had to go through. And I, you know, I just, I just want to say that because I, I think in, in moments like these with all the discussions about COVID, we often forget that there were real people affected by this, real people who have families, real people who, you know, want to be seen, want to be loved. And um, in, in times like these, when, you know, on top of you going through health issues, you turn on the news and you see people thinking that all of this is a hoax when you know that your problems are very real. Then you go to doctors and they cannot give you answers. It's the frustration and the devastation in your story. It very much touches me. So the World Health Organization defines long COVID symptoms as symptoms lasting three or more months after first contracting the virus. And those symptoms would need to be ones they, the patients did not have prior to their COVID-19 infection. I could not find reliable data for Canada, but in the United States, one in 13 adults, that is 7.5% of the adult population, suffer from long COVID symptoms. Now, jumping ahead a little bit, and for you to tell the rest of your story, but do you have a clear understanding and diagnosis now of what you are suffering from? Well, first of all, thank you for that message of compassion. That feels really nice to receive. Yeah, I do know what I have now. 
after learning from the ER doc- from the ER doctor that whatever I had was getting worse and that he felt really concerned, they upped my urgency and I started to receive treatment faster. Maybe not treatment. Uh, they were trying, still trying to diagnose. They didn't want to admit me to hospital for fear of some other infection, but they did a lung biopsy. And there's a little story that goes along with the lung biopsy, but I'll, <laughs> I, won't, I won't go into that one. However, I had a collapsed lung because when they're doing that biopsy, the lung tissue is so delicate that it, it's possible to nick the lung and then have a collapsed lung. So I had a collapsed lung and that meant that I actually had uh, to return to the hospital to make sure that my lung was inflating again. And in doing that, I, I spoke to, he happened to be a radiologist. They had radiologists insert the tubing into my lungs to help it reinflate because they're used to inserting chemo, you know, chemo medication, uh, I, I don't know, are they stints? I'm not really sure. But anyway, I, I was speaking to a radiologist and it was just his his nurse and uh, him and I, and he started asking me like, do you have any idea what's going on with you? He said, I saw your, I saw your x-rays. I, I looked at your file. Like, do you have any idea? And I said, no, <laughs> like I, I, I think I got COVID in, in 2020 before there were tests. I think I had long COVID, but I don't know what this is. I don't know why I'm, I still can't breathe. And he said, I don't know if anyone has told you this yet, but if you get sick on top of what you have in your lungs, we won't be able to help you. Like you are in such rough shape right now that if you got anything, a cold, anything, you know, we'd admit you to ICU, but I don't know that we could help you. I don't know that you would be okay. Like you need to only be around people who understand how serious your disease is. You need to shrink your world to just the immediate people that need to be in your world and nobody else. And even those people, they need to understand just how fragile your life is right now. And like that scared the crap out of me. But I was also so thankful that I had this quiet moment with this doctor who had time to say to me, this is serious. You've got to, you've got to take this really seriously. And the lung biopsy came back as pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, which is basically like in our lungs, the, the little alveoli, that's where oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange. So we breathe out the carbon dioxide and we breathe in the oxygen. And for that exchange to happen, there's like this little surfactant um, that allows that to happen. And normally we have these white blood cells, macrophages, that will come along and they'll clean the surfactant out. In the biopsy, they discovered that I had a buildup of this surfactant. And this buildup, it can either be a symptom or it can be a disease. So they, at that point in time, they knew that I had pulmonary alveoli proteinosis, but they didn't know if it was um, a symptom of something in my environment or if it was an autoimmune disease. And to find that out, they needed to do blood work. And it is such a rare disease 
that not all countries in the world can do this blood work. Once they realized that I had this PAP, they decided that they were going to send me to, I'm so lucky to live where I live. We have a fabulous research institution um, that is also part of a hospital. And so they sent me to their clinic so that I could be in their care because they're used to dealing with people with rare lung diseases. So anyway, I, I, I moved over to that group. Um, by that point in time, I was on oxygen and needing oxygen for every activity. And in fact, it was getting so bad that I, I, for the most part, I couldn't do many activities anymore. So, you know, even just doing things with my kids, my mom had to, you know, take my dog and, you know, there were, it was, there was a lot going on and yet I didn't have like the capacity to grieve any of it at that time either. And I went in for my appointment and they took the blood work and they said, you know, we're going to have to send this blood work to is well, they, they did blood work for so many different diseases and illnesses. Um, it was many vials of blood. <laughs> and as we were approaching Christmas, Omicron was really rampant in North America, us and in Canada. And for us, that meant that, you know, once again, businesses were being shut down. Hospitals were beyond capacity. They were trying to figure out what they were going to do to continue to service people who needed emergency care because they were just so overwhelmed with Omicron. And people were really upset about, you know, around Christmas time, once again, you know, they're calling for lockdowns in Ontario, in our province. And, you know, people were really pushing back. And it wasn't just Ontario, it was all of Canada uh, that people were starting to feel really angry and voicing their anger on social media. They, there was noise around having a protest, which later became, um, I think they called themselves the Freedom Trucker Protest. But I was getting worse and worse and worse. And we couldn't, you know, I, it was just my kids and my husband and my parents. Um, we all agreed that we weren't going to, that they weren't going to see anyone to protect me. My mom was doing our grocery shopping and she would go at, I don't know what time she went, 6 a.m. or something when no one else was there. And at some point after Christmas, after another really bad night of not breathing, Steve said to me, you know, how, how much longer do you think you can do this? How much longer do you think you can wait for your treatment? Because at that point in time, they knew that I needed a lung lavage and they were trying to schedule it, but they were having a hard time scheduling it because Omicron was so prevalent and taking over, you know, hospitals. But Steve was looking at me saying, you know, I don't know how much longer you can manage. And, you know, I, I was starting to feel really scared too. Like it was one thing to feel scared about getting another illness on top of what I was already experiencing. But we started to realize like my path for getting treatment was also narrowing. I might not make it to the point where I can get treatment. So I, I called my doctor and I said, you know, I had a really bad night. I have my oxygen up as high as it can go. I, I'm bedridden all day. Crawling to the bathroom is beyond exhausting. 
you know, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and he said, I think you need to come in as an emergency patient. And so, yeah, I, I was admitted to the hospital and um, I got to see firsthand how, what it meant to have a hospital overwhelmed with COVID. And, you know, I, I'm so grateful for our public health care. I don't want it to be a knock on, you know, having public health care. I'm, I, I'm in, I've thought about that so many times, how, you know, the number of times I had to go to ER, the number of times I've seen doctors, and it's not like I had to pay out of pocket for any of that. And I'm so grateful because I'm just so grateful. Anyway, uh, being in the hospital, it was emotional seeing what that hospital was like, the strain that staff were under, just the number of people who needed care. But that was actually like it was at that time when I was just admitted to my room um, and they were planning to do an emergency lung lavage. The province shut down all all surgeries, all non-essential surgeries and by the way, non-essential, <laughs> they include like people who are waiting for their cancer surgery, brain tumor. That was determined non-essential. It was really only people who were, you know, coming into the hospital because of a car accident or it was like imminent death. Those were the ones that were allowed to go through and still have a surgery. And I was considered one of those in the hospital. You know, I, anyway. I get, I get emotional just remembering. I get flooded with all of the feelings. But it was in the hospital that first day that I was admitted to my hospital room that they came back and they said, you know, we were waiting on this one last test. Every other test that we did, you came back negative. And this one test for autoimmune PAP, you're positive. Your body is making anti-antibodies attacking these macrophages, these white blood cells in your lungs and making it so that your body can't get rid of this surfactant. And, you know, I still needed the lung lavage. It didn't change my treatment. It was really great to know that it had a name. I didn't know much about autoimmune diseases at that time. I think that my doctors were trying to explain to me, like they were trying to get me up to speed, but it all felt quite overwhelming. But basically, they said this type of a disease, along with lots of other autoimmune diseases, it's usually triggered. So genetically, who knows how many people are walking around with potential for autoimmune diseases? It could be all of us. So who knows how many people are walking around with autoimmune diseases? But for that to get turned on in your body, you need to have experienced a virus and I thought, well, <laughs> I think I know what virus that was. <laughs> and so I only have one, I've, I've been saving my papers that I have, you know, my medical documents, and I only have one document that says possible COVID case. And it's from that being in that room where like suddenly pieces were falling into place. Suddenly it was like, you know, we, we will never know for sure if I had COVID, we will never know for sure if I had long COVID, but here we are, you know, after getting a weird collection of symptoms in March, 2020 and living with a weird collection of symptoms for years, you know, now I had something that was actionable and that I could say, 
you know, this is real and have people take me seriously. And so it was validating um, and it was scary. Is there a projection whether this will ever go away, especially with it being an autoimmune disorder, or if you will most likely have to live with this for the rest of your life? I think this is what my doctors were trying to help me grasp. I, I will have this for the rest of my life now <laughs> because it's such a rare disease. There's so few people in the world who have it. The, you know, the research that they have on this disease, you know, it, it's not reliable. There's just not enough of a sample size to know what my experience is going to be like. So I have been incredibly lucky in, in so many ways, but I had a, such a fabulous medical team who gave me my lung lavage. They were so thorough and part like they don't have, there's no medication for this. At least, you know, there's no medication that seems to be working for all of the people who have this disease. The only thing is treatment. Whenever you need a lung lavage going into the hospital and going through this brutal process where they basically beat up your ribs, trying to help your lungs loosen up the surfactant so that this solution that they're pumping through one of your lungs while the other lung does all of the work of breathing and they're trying to wash it out. They're trying to flush it out and it's a ton of fluid and under certain circumstances, they actually can't do it for people. You know, if your body is too weak, if your lung is too far gone or too far damaged, you know, if they're, if they're unsure, if you can survive the lung lavage, then, you know, they, they have ways of mitigating that. Like maybe they'll do one lung and then a few months later after you've recovered, do the other lung. But, you know, there, there could be a point in time when my body can't handle, you know, all of the things that it has to go through to get a lung lavage. So, I mean, there's that piece of it, but I'm doing really well. And uh, I'm doing so well, actually. <laughs> um, and I know that how I take care of myself right now will have an impact on my health in general. I don't totally understand how this autoimmune disease works, but I suspect that um, whatever I can do to stay healthy is helpful. <laughs> there is a new drug that is being tested and it looks really positive and hopeful. It doesn't get rid of the disease, but it can lengthen the time between lung lavages. And yeah, I, you know, I, I feel hopeful and grateful for the medical system. That treatment, that drug, I remember, you know, hearing how much it costs to get that drug <laughs> um, per year. And I remember just being floored at the thought that someone or a bunch of people were paying this amount of money so that I could lead a more full life. And I remember saying that to my doctor and almost feeling like a sense of survivor's guilt around it. Like, really, I'm going to get this so that I can go back out into life and live a little bit. And just feeling like this, like, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to receive this gift. And he said, you can't look at it that way. You can't focus on how much 
this costs because this is part of a bigger picture. The research that's being done on this drug, the research that you would be agreeing to take part in, it's part of this bigger understanding of illness, a bigger understanding of autoimmune diseases, a bigger understanding of how our immune systems work. And so, yeah, I will always have this. Recently, I got to see another uh, x-ray of my lung. Actually, it wasn't an x-ray. It was a, a CAT scan of my lungs. And the doctor, an expert in this field, he said, you know, when I look at your lungs, if someone were to ask me, an expert in looking at lungs, if someone were to ask me, what is this? He'd say, I have no idea. I, I have no idea what I'm look like looking at. This looks bizarre. And then he said, if someone were to say to me, this is someone who has autoimmune PAP, he would go, okay, maybe. <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm out in a zone that there's not a lot of information about. And so it's like living with all kinds of unknowns. And there's so many unanswered questions. I think that's probably been the biggest challenge of knowing that I'm going to have this for life is also recognizing there's going to be this anxiety for life. My doctors have reassured me that I will get used to living with this anxiety, but yeah, I'm still so new to this. I'm not used to it yet. I love that despite all of this, you describe not so much the despair right in 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 your situation but you actually describe the gratitude for the medication the gratitude for the doctors who are helping you for your medical team um i think that's truly beautiful and one thing you mentioned to me is that this whole ordeal as painful and as heartbreaking but i think that's that's not even strong enough like i mean I feel like as as painful and as destructive, yes, as as painful and as destructive as this whole experience has been, because I'm sure there were many moments when you were an inch from giving up. You utilize this as something to open your eyes to the preciousness of life. How do you use this revelation, the revelation that life is such an incredible gift? to now also potentially help other people become more aware of how privileged we are to take another breath and to see another day? Well, after my my procedure, my double lung lavage, you know, I was still so clueless. I thought, you know, I'll be back. I'll be back to real life <laughs> within a week. And it, it the recovery was intense. Like I'm lucky that I didn't have broken ribs. I guess normally you would have a lot of broken ribs, but I just had severe bruising and I had lost so much weight and I was just very weak. But as my body was regaining strength, I was suddenly so aware of how precious my life was, how close I came to Oh, I hope I don't cry. How close I came to uh, to not being able to take another breath. And when I was in the hospital, you know, especially when I was in ICU, I was a unique ICU case because I was conscious. And, you know, being in that ICU and knowing that not everybody gets to leave that ICU, you know, some people don't get to keep breathing and some people don't get to go on. 
and hug their family again and, you know, grow some lettuce (laughs) and do all the things that I get to do. And so coming out of the hospital, it was surreal because the day that I was released from the hospital and I was begging to go home, I I didn't want to stay there any longer, but like I, I was released out into the world and I was still bloody and I was still bruised and I was still so weak and I was on oxygen and driving home. It was the same day that the freedom trucker convoy was going through our part of the province. And, you know, I'm going home just so thankful to be alive. And I've left behind people who may not get to leave the hospital. And I know how vulnerable they are. And I knew how vulnerable I was. And just seeing these masses of people talking, you know, with their signs about anti-vax, anti-mandate. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, please don't do that. Please choose our lives. Please make us, please make, please let us matter. (laughs) And uh, like one of the things that, you know, not that I would want to relive this or want anyone to live this, but one of the things about feeling like I was coming so close to not making it out, not living, not breathing was, you know, I I was thinking about dying and what it would mean to die. And I, you know, I knew that the hospital was going to do everything that they could to keep me alive. And once I was in the hospital, I actually felt a little bit more safe. Like I saw them doing it for other people. They were going to do it for me too. And I felt a bit of relief before I came home, but coming home, like everything that I saw uh, was flooding back to me. And suddenly all of the emotions were there. And one of the things about coming so close to dying is you start to, I don't know, I wouldn't say it was something that I wanted to experience, but it wasn't scary. Like suddenly being so close to dying and then getting to live. I, I, I couldn't grasp that. Like my brain was having a really hard time understanding, like I got to, I got to go home and that other person in ICU, they didn't, their family, you know, is planning a funeral for them right now. And this idea about like death is always right there. It was, it was always right there. And we just never pay attention to that. And that's part of the privilege of being healthy is you don't realize how death is always right there and not in a scary way. Like I think I started to realize, you know, death is right there and it's not trying to scare me. It's just trying to ask, how do you want to live? (laughs) Like if, if death is right there beside you, how do you want to live today? What do you want to value? And it wasn't like I was actively trying to like look at the bright side or, you know, aiming for any particular outcome. There was a period of time in my recovery where physically I was doing great. And emotionally, I was just overwhelmed by what I was seeing in the world around me and my own experience. And I I remember saying to friends, this could go in the direction of PTSD. (laughs) this is intense. I I don't know how to like, I I don't know how to move through all of this. 
and then slowly I, I, I came out of it. And part of the way that I think I managed through the uncertainty, and I'm talking about the entire uncertainty, you know, prior to being hospitalized, being in the hospital, which was a really intense experience and coming out of the hospital, you know, it was, it was actually leaning into self-awareness practices and compassion practices and going through every single tool that I had been teaching to other people in my work at Meta Mentoring, you know, trying to help people get clarity about what they're feeling and what they're needing and what they want to value and how to access self-compassion. And then once you've got enough self-compassion and you feel ready, like reaching out and having compassion for other people, like I think it was that process of constantly going back to self-awareness and self-compassion. And if I couldn't access self-compassion, knowing that I needed to reach out to others and receive compassion from others. And I, it was such a gift (laughs) and it's a gift that, you know, again, I wouldn't want to wish on anyone else. And I'm not even really sure I would want to relive it if I had a choice, but I recognize, you know, I got to see and experience compassion in a way that not everybody gets to see and experience. And I actually, part of my healing process I had been journaling all along and I decided to turn my journal entries into a book um, that highlights how, you know, repeatedly going into compassion practices helped me keep my sanity. It helped me so that I wasn't carrying around that anger and frustration that I might've been pointing towards other people who didn't agree with my wish for everyone to follow mandates and get vaccinated. You know, I kept leaning back into compassion and empathy and trying, you know, once I felt like I had capacity, you know, trying to understand what is their perspective, what is their pain, you know, what is potentially the need behind their action. You know, I I, I may not to this day agree with the choices that some people are making, but Repeatedly going into compassion has been a huge part of my healing. And I think it's been a huge part of what kept me afloat when things were really scary. The book is called Finding Ahimsa, and uh, it's it, it will be out soon. <laughs> um, I have a podcast, Meta Mentoring, that I actually started before I knew what this disease was. And so I'm in the process now of trying to figure out how to integrate more of my disease learning into that podcast. But I'm really hoping that, you know, if other people are in the midst of something really difficult, that they can learn from my process of finding compassion for myself. And by that, I mean, like, embracing your anger and embracing your, you know, feelings that culturally we're told, you know, aren't pretty feelings or, you know, keep that to yourself. Uh, No, (laughs) those feelings are there for a reason. They're guiding you. They're trying to help you heal. They're trying to help you connect, you know, really leaning into compassion is I think part of our overall healing and 
Yeah. So I feel inspired right now to, to share some of my practices and help other people so that they, first of all, don't have to feel so alone in their experience. And second of all, I want them to be okay. I want them to find their way to, you know, I want them to find their way out of it. I want them to find their way to at least peace. If you have, you know, even if you have to live with tragedy or disease or, you know, something else that just rips your world, you know, how, how to hold on to those parts that are so difficult and yet still be able to, uh, it feels like such a big ask, but to still be able to find peace and beauty in the world and still feel like yourself. (laughs) I come with, or I, I finish this episode with a lot of gratitude to you for sharing your story, for being so open about what you had to go through, but also about the lessons that we sometimes find in the darkest places. The lessons are not just taught in the light. Oftentimes, it's actually the dark hours that make us mature as a person or that open our eyes to what's actually right in front of us, our very own existence. So thank you so, so, so very much, Aaron. Now, if our listeners have some questions for you, would you consider coming back for a future episode to answer those questions? I I would love to come back. Thank you so much for giving me the space and the time to listen to my story and to join me in reliving parts of it. I would be so honored to come back and and to listen to other people's stories and to share in any ways that might be helpful. I would love that. Thank you. I would like to close this episode by sending my best wishes to Erin and by thanking her for truly touching me and I'm sure many of you out there as well with her story about gratitude for every breath, every moment, and every bit of compassion displayed by people during those deeply vulnerable times we all face. Whether it's because of a disease, loneliness, or something else that manages to rip a hole into the life we desire. Thoughtvolutionists, I appreciate you for being here and for just listening. You know what a different kind of world this could be if we just took the time to listen and pay attention to one another? To our needs, our journeys, our desire to not be invisible? If you would like to learn more about Erin, her incredible life, as well as her upcoming book, please go to metamentoring.ca. That's metamentoring.ca. I personally cannot wait for her book to be released because I find her to be a powerful and inspiring person. You can also ask your questions as part of a follow-up episode. To get those questions to us, please go to thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. There's a lot to explore, and it is also where you can fill out the contact form for this show. If you would like for your own voice to be heard, fill out the intake form to be a guest on this show. That is exactly how Aaron did it. Don't forget to pay our merch store a visit to check out some of our hoodies, shirts, stickers, notepads, tumblers, or hats. You can also call our virtual voicemail number at 864-501-5033. That is 864-501-5033 and leave us a message. I always forget to mention this, but we are even on YouTube. So I would love for you to hop over there to like and subscribe our channel called Thoughtvolution. And feel free to comment on the stories told by your favorite guests. 
We're building a community here, and I think that that is one lesson that COVID really did teach us all. We are meant to help and support each other, and we cannot do it alone. Supporting each other could be sitting down without that phone in your hand to just listen to your neighbor, your friend, your cousin, uncle, dad, mom, brother, sister, a stranger, to the people in and around your circles. Let's stop taking each other for granted, taking the little things in life for granted. Something as simple as taking a breath, waking up, seeing another day, being allowed to just be a little longer is worth celebrating. So please be attentive and don't let the beauty of today pass you by. I love y'all so very much and I cannot wait to meet you back here next week. Until then, be safe, stay as healthy as you are able to, and please be kind to each other.